Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm delighted to have you with me today, and I want to repeat an announcement I made two weeks ago. On Saturday, May 13th, from 9 a.m. to noon Central Time, the Family Action Council of Tennessee, God, Law, and Liberty is hosting a Knox Unplugged live remote podcast in Franklin, Tennessee at Parish Presbyterian Church featuring David Shannon, known as Chuck Knox with Cross Politics, Jason Farley, an author, poet, and founder of Lure, L-O-O-R, dot TV, and Dr. George Grant, who's a pastor here in Franklin, author and the host of the podcast, Resistance and Reformation. We're going to be doing this live podcast on the 13th. It will be a ticketed event, and the purpose is to limit the number of people who come and limit it to those who would be most interested, willing to pay uh, to, to come to the event, so that the podcast can be more interactive with those who come. And we're going to be looking at how we understand the nature of the universe and whether we really see it as a symphony or a machine and how that works its way out in the context of our understanding of the family and civil government. And the title to the podcast will be A World Ends When Its Metaphor Dies. In other words, the metaphor of the cosmos as symphony or machine when the prevailing metaphor, whichever it is, dies. That world, that age, that epoch in time dies and that affects other things like our understanding of the family and civil government. So I hope you will make plans to attend. If you are interested, send us an email at info at factn.org. That's info at factn.org. Tell us you would like to get the link to register for the May 13th event. And as soon as that link is available, we will email it to you. I think we already have about a third of the tickets requested, so don't delay in sending us an email so that you get the first opportunity to purchase a ticket. Now today I think is going to be interesting because, oh, to be honest, I'm going to challenge the way we really look at the world versus the way we say we look at the world. And I'm going to confess to you right now at the top of the show, my worldview was wrong because my cosmology was wrong. In other words, my metaphor, my understanding of the way the world works was wrong. So while I stood for biblical values, I stood for norms that were consistent with biblical moral law, let's say, my whole way of doing it was wrong. That's hard to admit when you've been doing something for 20 plus years to say, uh, I wasn't doing it right, but I wasn't. 
And that's what we're going to explore today, but we're going to explore it in the context of, and this will be our last episode specifically to bring it up, and, and that's the exchange between atheist scientist Richard Dawkins and Franklin Graham that occurred in the context of the cultural conversation taking place about transgenderism. And so, in this last episode of, about that particular event, we're going to take a look at one other aspect of the comments that I got back to my commentary on Mr. Graham's response to Mr. Dawkins. And it should be clear after the last two weeks that I believe Christians may agree with Dawkins that there are two biological sexes, but that there is where the agreement with Dawkins ends. As I explained two weeks ago, Dawkins would deny the concept of human nature and actually, and particularly, I should say, as bearing the image of God. Because his view of the entire cosmos is that it's devoid of any given meaning and purposes and transcendent authority to ascribe meaning and purposes. And as I covered last week, even Christians should not agree that male and female is the essential content of what it means to be made in the image of God because God is not a material being. But what we're going to look at today is one of the comments and criticisms of the commentary directed at the fact that we need unity among Christians. And I assume in the context of the commentary, unity on the issue of transgenderism. And my question is, why is that unity so important even when our theology may get sloppy or even bad? Why is it so important? And why is making alliances with those with whom we have no fundamental or ultimate agreement about the nature of reality considered important? Why is that? Now, if there's one thing in my view of law and politics that's changed the most radically over the last two years, it's my thinking about unity among Christians and alliances in politics or the culture wars between Christians and, and, and even at times haters of Christianity and even God. Why is that so important? And what I came to conclude from my own grappling with the words of Scripture is that I thought that that kind of unity and alliance with essentially mockers and blasphemers, let's say, was important because I didn't understand the nature of the world God made and how it works. And at a personal level, I didn't really know what it meant to live by faith. Now, what began to work on me to bring about this transformation, I guess you could say, was first the stark statement made by Paul in Romans that whatever is not of faith is sin. In other words, and going back to the episodes I did on uh, foundations, 
whatever we may be doing that looks like a righteous deed may be nothing more than a filthy rag, as Isaiah put it in chapter 64, in God's sight. In other words, if a work that we do is not of faith, we need to confess that work or the attitude or the means of operation in that work as sin. The second thing that began to work this transformation in me on this understanding of the importance of unity and the nature of unity and the importance of alliances in the realm of politics was Romans 3.23 and 2 Corinthians 4.6. In the passage in Romans, Paul says sin is falling short of the glory of God. And according to the passage in 2 Corinthians, a Christian is one in whom God has shown into our hearts the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And note, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.6 is an act of God. It's not an act of pure human will unaffected first by the Spirit of God. It notes that just as God called light out of darkness, God shone the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in our hearts. It was by the Word of God, the fiat of God, into our lives that began to reveal the glory of God in the face of Christ. And what happened to me a few years ago is I read the preface to John Owen's book, The Glory of Christ. Sometimes it's called Meditations and Discourses on the Glory of Christ. You can find it online, a PDF version. I knew as I read that preface, I was not one of those persons the Apostle Paul described in 2 Corinthians 4 or at the very best, I was not a person who was pursuing a fuller understanding of what glory of God is resident in Jesus Christ that I should come to know and understand, value, appreciate, and apply. Why is that knowledge important? You know, I grew up wanting to know what to do. And actions really preceded knowledge. Just tell me what the Bible requires. I was like the rich young ruler. Well, I've done those things or I've not done those things, but I missed the weightier points of the whole narrative of the Bible that is the law of God. Remember, in, in the Old Testament, the Torah was not just the commands in Leviticus per se about eating and drinking and washing and you know how the priest was supposed to conduct services, right? The Torah came to be seen as the whole Pentateuch. The first five books, it was all teaching us about God. Well, let me, let me move on. The reason this, this knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ is so important is because in Colossians 2, verse 4, the Apostle Paul, who he described himself as having had a revelation of Jesus Christ, 
wrote that it's in the knowledge of the mystery of the Father and the Son that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And the necessity of pursuing that knowledge was laid bare by the next verse, so that you may not be deceived. And boy, I'm here to tell you, I had been deceived all my adult life about both the nature of law and how to do politics. And in some, I was deceived because I had not come to the knowledge of the relation of the Father to the Son and what that relation has to the created order. In other words, to the nature of the cosmos and the way it works, which is why I speak so much about it. I don't want others to be as deceived as I was. And look, I, I could drone on week after week about some legal falderall taking place in our country or some political or cultural issue, and I could give you practical insights on the politics of what's taking place from my 28 years of experience. I could give you information about the niceties of constitutional issues. And, and look, that's not unimportant. But I'm convinced that if no one ever comes to know God better, to see more of the glory of God being revealed or suppressed in law and politics after listening to these podcasts, then my endeavors in trying to put this together every week will be burned up, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. It will not be producing fruit that in the words of Jesus found in John 15, 16, remains. It will not have enduring eternal value. So with that, let's jump into this question that was raised by these um, observers of my commentary on the importance of unity and alliances. Now, first, among the several things I want to say, is that Christians can thwart the unity that's to be demonstrated in the body of Christ, but that unity is in Christ not in a label like Christianity or Christian that increasingly means nothing. As we learned from the cleric who came to testify in support of transgenderism in the name of the God of inclusive and expansive love, Jesus Christ, right? And when we see faulty expositions of who Christ is, which, as we've learned, I hope, will have implications for the nature of the cosmos we live in and how it works, then for the sake of unity in Christ, we need to speak up. We shouldn't be afraid to speak up. Otherwise, all we have is a superficial unity lacking substantive content. And that's why I think there is something more in the complaint of the person speaking about the divisiveness of my commentary among Christians. I don't think his, his comment or his observation had anything to do with our witness to the glory of Christ and the unity that's to be found in him as much as it was. We need to be together in this fight against transgenderism and the harm it's inflicting, particularly on our teenagers. 
But if that is the case, then I think a larger point has been lost, and it ties back into last week's discussion of the image of God and a key purpose of the reproductive sexes, namely, as Bobbick put it, that, and I'm going to quote, only the whole of humanity is the fully developed image of God, his children, his offspring. The image of God can only be somewhat unfolded in its depth and richness in a humanity counting billions of members. Humanity, he said, as having been created out of one blood as one household and one family is the image and likeness of God. In other words, the image of God is so great, so profound, so infinite to our and beyond our comprehension, it takes a whole of humanity to begin to express the image of God. Now, copulation and reproduction do reveal the glory of God that's resonant in the oneness of his ontological nature. It, it reflects the glory of God resident in the differentiation of the persons of the Trinity and their function, the economy of God. But procreation was about more than the multiplication of persons as such. And it was about more than having hands for gardening and subduing. It was, it was that the breadth and depth and width and height of the glory of God, of the image of God, could be revealed and it will take a hold of humanity over the whole of history to reveal the image of God, even in part. As Bobbink said, somewhat unfolding. So no, I, I don't think the purity and the revelation of God by the bride of Christ for the sake of God's glory was, was really this reader's concern. I think his point was more in the nature of that expressed by another reader, namely, the importance of and the need for alliances in the sphere of politics if we're going to stop, and here's what I'm going to say, stop these transgender procedures. I didn't say transgenderism, but transgender procedures. And I say that because I hope we are beginning to understand that the necessity of procedures is becoming less and less associated with the concept of gender. You know, it used to be if you wanted to say you had transitioned, you had to have gone through certain medical regimens and particularly it would be including morphological changes, body changes, surgeries, right? But surgeries are increasingly unnecessary. You recall the swimmer, the male swimmer, goes by Leah Thomas. He still has his male organs and has to have a swimsuit fitted to accommodate him because he did not go full bore into this transition. So in other words, if all we're really seeking alliances to do is to rail against these procedures, we're not really doing much of anything to impede the idea that gender is a subjective social construct divorced from biology. 
which is increasingly disconnecting the need for procedures from the expression of one's subjective identity, which is exactly the liberty protected by the United States Supreme Court in Obergefell to define and express one's identity. So passing a law to prohibit a procedure on a teenager is not solving the problem that brought about the desire for and the provision of the procedures in the first place. It's attacking a symptom or a fruit, but not the root of the problem. And what brought about these procedures was a cosmological revolution or upheaval that worked its way into our conception of law itself and has worked its way out over the last 50 years and was in particular finished in the Obergefell decision in June 26th of 2015. That's when the revolution was completed. That cosmological revolution was a change or was the finalization of a change in our understanding of the nature of the cosmos and how it works. And that's what brought about the change in our understanding of what it means to be human. And that's what brought about transgenderism. So stopping procedures is doing nothing to stop this cosmology, this cosmological revolution from continuing to work its way out. So here at least is one key takeaway before I move on to the matter of alliances. Unless the laws we try to pass also work to restore the cosmology we lost, then we're not building anything. We're at best only stopping bad things and then only at best stopping them on a short-term and temporary basis. Do I say that to create disunity in the body of Christ that's pressing for these laws all around the country? No. I say it because the Word of God tells us what happens to work not laid on the cosmological nature of who Christ is. It gets burned up. And it's not a fruit that endures. It can endure because it, it's not a work of faith by people made of faith. Now that last phrase, people made of faith, that, that's a turn of a phrase that comes from Galatians chapter 3 that I'd never seen and, and we're going to explore it in a future podcast episode. But if you're interested in it, then that's part of what we'll be covering at the Knox Live event, Knox Unplugged Live event on May 13th. So again, just a reminder, if you're interested in digging deeper into how we really understand the world and how that's working its way out in our families and in government, then go, go get your ticket anyway. And when I say that this is not going to work, we, we need to remember again that whatever is not of faith is sin, and God doesn't bless sin. He may use it for his glory, he may use it to discipline his people, but he never blesses sin. We can just write that down. So what is not of faith is sin. God doesn't bless sin. If we don't build on the cosmological work of Christ, then we're not building on the right foundation. Now let's return to this need for alliances and wrap up for today. The first thing I've noticed 
is that Christians are usually joining the worldview side of the Richard Dawkinses, not calling them to join our side. We're unwilling, this is what I believe, we're unwilling to let the judgment of God on them work its way out. And I think we need to ask why. Because if, as Romans 1.18 tells us, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, why would we seek to interfere in that revelation of wrath except to call the Richard Dawkinses who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness that produces this meaningless, purposeless cosmos, why would we not be calling him to repent instead of joining his side? Why would we forego calling him to repent and join our side to join his side? That, that's problematic to me. I, I, don't, I confess I don't get it. Maybe, maybe somebody can tell me why I would join the mockers rather than call out their mocking and invite them to join us. But anyway, I have, I have thoughts on that. Maybe we can come back to them next week. But I think we need to examine why there seems to be this compelling sense that Christians must strike alliances with those who deny the fundamental truth about the nature of reality we say we believe in. And here's my answer. You're probably not going to like it. I wouldn't have liked it either a year or so ago. But I believe we have unwittingly agreed with the Richard Dawkinses about the nature of reality, about the nature of the cosmos and the way it works. I'm not saying we agree with them propositionally, but we agree with them practically as a practical matter. And again, if you're interested in exploring this, this view of the cosmos and how it works and how it affects family and government, join us on May 13th. But it would be natural if you were to ask me, as I would have probably asked myself, how is it that you think we agree with the atheist on the nature of the cosmos and the way it works? And for the sake of time, I'm going to be brief and I'm going to state my answer propositionally. But Lord willing, we can explore that more next week as we take an in-depth look at the situation here in Tennessee involving the three Tennessee State House representatives who were leading the gun control chants outside the chamber, known as the Tennessee Three, and their expulsion by the Republican supermajority in the House. We'll, we'll look at this question of how we actually think the cosmos work in that context. But here's my proposition. We really believe the world operates on the basis of power and rivalry. And we only give lip service to the proposition that the world's made of and is sustained and directed by the word of God, specifically the word of his power referenced in Hebrews 1.3. And it is exercised in accord with God's eternal decrees that change not because he doesn't change. Now, we may ascribe to what 
that verse in Hebrews says, at least propositionally, and we may ascribe propositionally to the eternality, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, and providential direction of all things according to an eternally predetermined end, even as the ancient Hebrews did, while simultaneously seeking out an alliance with Egypt in the face of the approaching danger to Jerusalem and Judah by the advances of King Sennacherib of Assyria. And if you want to consider the consequences of that kind of alliance, joining the mockers and disbelievers of God to secure the Christian or the, 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 the people of God before next week, you might want to read Isaiah 30 and 31. And speaking of next week, I hope you'll join me as we continue to look at why Christians consider alliances with mockers so important in the sphere of politics. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.